0: Um, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves.
1: Let's pray. Father, it's been a great privilege for us to be able to worship you in our service through the week that has been. And for the opportunity, Father, to come together to express our worship to you and to respond to you together. We pray there is a sense that we will be opening our hearts, not just and our minds and our spirits, not just individually, but collectively together. And so, Father, we ask that you would speak into each of our lives, but that you would speak into our community. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing this morning in our series that we've been focusing on for Romans 12 about living transformed lives together. In verse 2, we were reminded uh, where Paul calls us to be transformed by having our minds renewed. And we're beginning to uh, explore about what that actually looks like to be transformed as God's people. And through the rest of this chapter, Paul explains specifically what it means to have our thinking changed. And we began this series by reminding ourselves, first of all, that the words that Paul brings in his chapter are very much based on what he had uh It's spoken of previously, particularly in the early part of uh, the book of Romans, when he spoke about us embracing the love and the grace and the mercy of God. And that as we embrace that, that it is the Spirit of God that brings about that transformation within our lives. Last week we saw how we are called to view ourselves and we do do so in sober judgment. We uh, had to have a... uh, a proper understanding of ourselves. But we also talked about gifts that God gives to us for the whole body so that we can actually function effectively. And the fact that every one of us has an important part to play and all of us have a contribution to make to the life of our community together. We move now on to what this looks like as we work out this transformation, as we allow the Spirit of God to actually continue to transform our lives, and this morning we're focusing just on verses nine and ten. As, begins, as Paul begins to develop this whole idea of being transformed, the theme through Romans, or these couple of verses, is clearly given at the beginning of verse nine with the words, "Love must be sincere." The word here literally means let love be without hypocrisy. Or as J.B. Phillips puts it, let us have no imitation Christian love. Or the message who translates it, love from the centre of who you are. Don't fake it. The New Testament Greek word for sincere here is composed of two root words, son and judge. And it has been suggested that when an object is inspected in the light of the sun, imperfections are often seen and therefore things would be sun-judged in regard to see whether they were pure or true. comes from the idea of sculptors and uh, pot makers who in making their uh, sculptures or making their pots and pans to sell, if they made any mistakes would often use wax or serra to hide the defects in their works. But however, whenever they were exposed to the sunlight, the wax would begin to dissolve and the faults would become apparent. And so sculptures and pots without defects came to be known as Sincera, meaning without wax. And some feel that's where we actually got the word Sincere. We also know that it means whole and clean and pure and uninjured and unmixed, figuratively sound and genuine and pure and true and candid and truthful, that which is not falsified. And Paul is saying that this is to be a characteristic of the early Christian community. In fact, most of the New Testament writers speak of this being a characteristic of those who are part of the Christian community. It is a place where it ought to be a place where love is demonstrated. So much so that in the early church, you began to make such an impact on the communities around them that other communities were actually ordered to try and imitate it, to try and copy it because of how people were drawn to Christianity because of the love that the Christians showed to each other. We find that almost every New Testament writer stresses the need for love. For example, in 1 Timothy 1, 1.5, Paul says to his young son of the faith, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's where it comes out. Above all, Peter says, love each other deeply. And Paul reminds us here and in other places that this love has to be a genuine love, not some kind of phony or hypocritical or play-acting or one with ulterior motive. Because you see, nothing is more destructive of integrity than hypocrisy because it is the contradiction of the truth. I reminded some quite a few years ago now my involvement with the football club, I told you would get plenty of football stories. But there was a, uh, a particular World Cup competition that was on at one time and there were two players, one from our own club and one from another club, who came to faith playing for a, one particular team during that period of time. The player that was with our club we sought to nurture very quietly, uh, but disciple him and mentored him that he might grow in his faith. And these days, now, many years later, he walks very strongly in his faith. The other player went to a a different church, went to another club. They had him up on the stage within a couple of weeks, like a trophy. He's a guy who hardly even knew anything about the Christian faith. And life was going okay for him. Uh, he just got married. he just got picked to the state of origin. And so life was looking good f- for him. And so he was put up on the stage, which made him to be a leader in the Christian church. But I remember a couple of months later, very clearly, that uh, Billy Johnson, who was our trainer at our club, who uh, was also the state of origin uh, coach, um, state of origin trainer. And Billy had nothing to do with Christian faith. And you know I go, on, okay, but just don't talk to me about Christianity at all." But I remember him coming back from the start of origin and he said, "Took me aside." He said, "Can I need to talk to you about so-and-so from the other club. Can you need to get someone to talk to him, because Ken, there's nothing worse than half a Christian. I don't blame the player. I blame the church. We've got to be very careful. about the hypocrisy. Now, very clear that what Paul is talking about here is about being transformed. It's about a present, ongoing tense. It's about the fact that God is continuing to work and change with us. None of us are perfect. None of us have got there yet. The hypocrisy comes when we pretend we have. When we pretend we've got it together. We give the impression to everybody else that we have it together. When really we haven't. In the early days of the church, it was very easy sometimes for others to imitate love if they didn't really have it. And people fell into the habit, as they do today, of pretending that they love, often using terms and gestures of love, but really not feeling it within their heart or their minds or their spirit. And often the aim of showing love was for some personal benefit or gain or advantage. That is hypocrisy. That is what this passage in Romans is warning us against. Don't let your love be hypocritical. Don't put it on. You know, sadly, we live in an age where often this is actually the spirit of our times to project an image, to pretend that one is something that one is not. All the world out there holds that up before us whether it be through television or radio or particularly through social media that we are encouraged to be something that we aren't we hide behind a different persona so that others won't get to know the real us and unfortunately we don't always appreciate how phony that often is and within the church that ought to be intolerable For if we are phony in any way in our love, it's a violation of the very thing for which our Lord came to do. There is no doubt that the evil one tries to convince us that we need to pretend to be better than we are so that others will love us and accept us. Whereas God's love for us is without condition. Despite our inadequacies. Earlier in Romans 5 and verse 5, Paul tells us that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So what does genuine love given by the Spirit look like? These couple of verses, these next few verses in Romans 12 expand on how such love is actually manifested within the family of God, within the church. He describes love, how it ought to look amongst Christians and it is concerned with the concrete and practical aspects of demonstrating genuine love that comes from God. Because they are virtues that we cannot live out in our own strength. They are not things that we can endeavour to achieve on our own. But it is only as we allow the Spirit of God through his grace and his love and his mercy to change us and to transform us that these things become possible for us to grow and mature and develop in. I'm only going to refer to the first couple this morning in these in these verses and we'll be digging down to others in the coming weeks. Firstly, genuine love rejects evil. Hate what is evil, Paul says, cling to what is good. There's such a danger that because we see so much evil and wrong around us that we become desensitised to it particularly through our media. Things that once offended and shocked us no longer have any impact on us. And we either just ignore it or we become indifferent or we dismiss it. Maybe even things once that we wouldn't tolerate in our own lives, we just now accept as normal. And Paul uses strong words here. He is very passionate about what he says. The word he uses here is the word hate or abhor. It's a word that describes an intense dislike, an aversion or a repugnance of something. Some years ago when I was on faculty at Morning um, John Reed, uh, one of my colleagues who was in the uh, room next door to me, uh, John went on sabbatical, so he shut his room up and nobody needed to go in there, so off he went. And for some reason, I had to go and get a book or something and I opened up and it was the most repugnant smell of a dead animal that was stuck in the wall. It starts to make you gag so hurriedly that you remove yourself from the room. That paints the picture of a person who hates something so extremely that they literally back away from it in disgust. This word reflects the feeling of a person who is so repulsed by something that he shuns and avoids it at all cost. This means that God expects that our tolerance level for sin and evil will be extremely low. And in fact, that we should have such repugnance for evil that we actively and continually guard against it from ever invading our own lives and the lives of our families. And those of us who are parents and grandparents have to make specific choices about that. Yet so often... We have lost our abhorrence towards things that belong to the kingdom of darkness. Or we have limited it to certain areas of sexual immorality while ignoring far more destructive behaviours. Those things that damage and destroy and ruin the lives of the needy and the disadvantaged and the marginalised and dispossessed. We need to detest what is detestable to God if our love is sincere. So what evil is he speaking of? Well, I'm sure we all have different opinions on that, on what is evil. But the word evil in the Greek conveys the notion of anything that is full of destruction or disaster or harm or danger. It includes not only that which is dangerous to the physical body, but also that is dangerous dangerous to the spirit and to the mind. So Paul is urgently telling us that we should have no tolerance at all for anything that would endanger our bodies or would do any kind of damage to our minds or our spirits. And this is especially important for those of us with the responsibility of children. It is natural for us to try and protect our physical bodies from things that would harm us. But sometimes we're not as careful when it comes to things that harm our minds or our spirits. Now, I do need to point out that this passage is not speaking about rejecting a person who may do evil but is caught up in evil but it is the evil itself we are still to love and embrace those who get caught up in it and help them to just to um, escape its clutches because God loves them and they are made in the image of God. Hypocritical love is when we only love a person if they conform to our acceptable standards. And that is one of the things in the church that turns people off more than anything else. Where people need to hear the great words of the New Testament about love and grace and peace and mercy and joy. Not rejection, prejudice or contempt. We need to reject the evil but not the person. Paul is indicating that genuine love here is drawn to that which is good and which is pleasing to God. When you found a treasure, you hang on to it with all your might, but then you share it with others. Love is not love unless you give it away. And the only way to really keep that which is good is to give it away freely and sincerely. When we cling to that which is good, we open opportunities for each other to to use our God-given talents and gifts for the glory of God's work. And then secondly, true love remembers that relationship is the ground of concern, not just friendship. Be devoted to one another in love. And in this particular instance here, which Paul is writing, he isn't referring to just anyone who is in need of difficulty, just in this context. It specifies your brother and sister. And later on, he expands beyond family. And the word for love here in the Greek is the word for family love, indicating family relationships. And the basis of concern for one another isn't how we know each other well or how much we enjoy each other. It's that we are related to one another even though we may never have even met before within the church. Most of us probably have strained or heartbroken relationships within our extended families but they are still family for whom we are concerned. Some years ago, Judy and I took in one of our own more distant relatives and family into our home, 15-year-old who had been involved in a whole range of different troubles and was very troubled and had been rejected by key people in her own life. And we took her in our own family to care for her because we were concerned for her but in the time that she was with us she came to us at 15 the time that she was with us she ripped us off she betrayed us she stole from us she ran away a number of times she was gone from school and so on when she was old enough The authorities allowed her enough. She left. It was heartbreaking. It was terribly disappointing. And we felt like failures to a large extent. She ended up in prison, drug dealing and robbery, the same as her mum. She's doing better now. Would we do it again? Of course we would. Because he's family. Even if we knew the same outcome would happen, we'd still do it. That's what it means to belong to family in the church. If we're Christians, we already have a tie that ought to evoke concern and care for one another. We love because we are members of one family together. And to express our love to one another within the church, we cannot be isolated units. We are brothers and sisters of each other because we have one father. The Christian church isn't meant to be a collection of acquaintances. It isn't even to be a gathering of friends. It's the family of God. And then, thirdly, Paul says that true love regards others as more deserving than oneself. Honour one another above yourselves. I like Philip's translation here when he says, be willing to let others have the credit. Well, the message says, puts it as practising second fiddle. I once read a sign that helped me when I am tempted to take credit for things, which said, there is no limit to the good that a person can do if they don't care who gets the credit. That's a tough one. But if you don't really care who gets the credit, then you can just enjoy yourself and do all kinds of good deeds. Just be glad that it's done. And don't worry about who gets the credit. I know that for myself, that This is something that most of us struggle with, including me, as most of us are quite eager to be acknowledged and promoted. But the scriptures tell us that real love doesn't act in that way. We are to give each other priority in honour. Over the years of my experience in working with churches, as well as the conversations that I've had with others through my own reading, I would estimate that about 50% of the difficulties that churches get themselves into arise from people or groups being concerned about rights and privileges and places and prestige. Someone hasn't been given his or her place. Someone has been neglected or unthanked. Someone has been... uh, given a more prominent place on the platform than someone else, and there's trouble. Yet the mark of a truly Christian person has always been humility. It isn't easy to give each other priority in honour. There's enough of self in each of us to want our rights, but as Christian believers, it isn't about rights, but it's about God's love and grace and mercy. Now, humility just doesn't overlook the differentiation that exists between people. We are unique, and we make different contributions. But this is due to God's provision through his grace to the body. It does not mean that we therefore have a higher estimate of ourselves or to receive higher prerogatives. And there's another way of honouring others that I feel compelled to speak about this morning. And it's about how sometimes we men speak of women and particularly our wives, especially we're in the company of other men. I don't think I have to spell that out. You know what I mean. I mix with men of all kinds of backgrounds in many different contexts and it is common conversation Which I believe is dishonouring. As Christian men, it ought not to be the case for us. Either in our own company or in the company of those who are not Christians. We need to be honouring in the way that we speak of women. And more particularly in the way that we speak of our wives in company. Now that could be true for women, but I can't speak to that. I don't know. But I think that's important for us to hear. Because it talks here about honouring others. And I think we men have a particular responsibility in that way. God He's continuing to transform us. His spirit continues to renew. And he does this in community. None of us are perfect. And we're all on a journey. We're on a journey individually and we're on a journey collectively. my prayer is this morning that I, that we, may be increasingly open to be further shaped and moulded by our Lord into the persons and the community he's calling us to be. And that our love for each other will be sincere. It won't be flawless. But let us not be hypocritical. That we might learn together. That we might encourage one another in what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Where we allow the Spirit through His grace and His love and His mercy. Continue to shape and transform us. I'm just going to leave us in silent meditation and reflection and prayer just for a minute or so before I'll lead us in prayer. Because I want each of us to respond to the Spirit of God and what the Spirit might be saying to us. If there is something that has touched you, something that has been raised, a question for you, something, or something you might disagree with, you won't want to raise with God as well. But I want each of us to speak quietly heart to heart with God. And then I'll lead us in prayer. And then we need to act on it. We need to not only just think about it for a moment and pray about it, we need to respond to God if he's prompting us in any way in how we to ensure that our love is sincere let us quietly come before God Father, we ask that by your grace that you might continue to transform us through the renewing of our minds. That, Father, that we might grow increasingly living in a way that is pleasing in your sight. Teach us, we pray. Help us to be open and honest, transparent and vulnerable in our love. Help us to draw away repulsively from those things that are of the kingdom of darkness. Help us to cling to what is good. May we be devoted to one another. And may we honour each other. Amen.